Well, if you've been back from a honeymoon for one day, two days, three days, something you learned very fast is the things that you thought were cute about your spouse when you were dating, when you were engaged are now annoying. They are no longer cute. They are annoying. My wife felt called to be a pastor. And she admired that in me. And she knew that I felt called to be a pastor. And so she wanted to be a pastor's wife. So that was part of what like drew her to me and, and me to her. But as we were getting closer to our wedding day and she knew how much money I was making and how much money I would probably be making as a pastor for like the rest of our lives, she said, Clayton, do you think we'll have enough money for me to still buy face wash when we get married? And I said, babe, I don't know. And she said, what? What, what do you mean you don't know? And I said, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much money we're making. I don't know about all the other expenses, like all the other priority, like all that kind of stuff. And she got really scared. And so we get back from a honeymoon, we're living in a duplex and uh, I'm taking a shower one day and, and I see that there's all these shampoo bottles perfectly positioned in this circle on the corner of our shower and there's nothing in the middle. It's like this perfect circle. And I think, oh, that's kind of funny. She kind of organized the shampoo bottles and, and soap and body wash and all that kind of stuff in a circle. And I walk up and I look down into this hole and her face wash was in the bottom of this hole, perfectly protected by all the shampoo bottles and body wash so that I couldn't get any of it. She didn't want me messing with her face wash because she was worried that we wouldn't have enough money for her to keep getting face wash and she wanted it to last as long as possible. I said, babe, what are you doing? She said, I don't want you to use my face wash. You said you weren't sure we're gonna have enough money. Uh, I, I know I felt called to be a pastor, but I can't go, or, or pastor's not, but I, I can't go without my face wash, all right? So some things that are cute and that are attractive and that draw us even to one another when we're dating, even when we're engaged, are somehow no longer cute and funny and attractive when you get back from your honeymoon and you actually start doing life together. Uh, my wife, <clears throat> when we were dating, was pretty messy. And so I'm looking at her apartment, I'm like, oh, she's kind of messy, you know? Or I look at her car, oh, she's it's cute. She's, she, you know, she's, she's, she's messy. Then you get back to, and you start living together and it's no longer cute, right? I'm like, I'm starting to get annoyed. I'm starting to get a little frustrated because now I'm having to deal with it. I'm having to live with it, right? So, so those things that are cute when you're dating or engaged aren't so cute anymore. The scripture says though, about a husband and a wife, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What God has joined together, let man not separate. And when I do weddings, I like to remind couples on their wedding day, as I'm doing their wedding, that you're gonna get back from your honeymoon and life's gonna hit. And what God has joined together, your own selfishness is gonna to try to separate. Satan and his compromising alternatives is gonna to try to separate what God has joined together. The, the world and its ideas of what marriage should be like and its compromising alternatives will try to separate what God has joined together. And so I spend that time with those couples when I'm doing their wedding, telling them and teaching in that moment, not just for them, but for everyone there, how, how do we have a lasting marriage where we don't separate what God has joined together. And I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about that today. Turn with me to Colossians chapter three. We are studying the book of Colossians verse by verse. And I didn't just come up with this random idea to do a message on marriage and husbands and wives and all this kind of stuff. When you read the scripture verse by verse, this is just what comes up next. And so we're gonna take some time this week. We're, we're doing a couple, some different things the next couple of weeks uh, in light of the 4th of July and after that, and then we'll be back and hit kind of part two uh, of this message. But but we're, we're going to the book of Colossians. We've invited you to study it with us, not just in here, but in our city groups where we're studying these verses, in our daily devotionals, on our app where we'll be studying these verses all this next week and providing you some commentary and prayer points and discussion questions. So join us in our city groups and in our daily devotionals this week as we study these verses we're about to read. But here's what we said the theme of Colossians is, in case you haven't been here. Christ supreme is the theme. Christ supreme in all things is the theme of Colossians. And if you haven't been here, I invite you to jump on our app, jump, jump on our podcast, and, and just join us in this verse-by-verse -verse study of 
Colossians. So Christ supreme is the theme. Christ supreme means that he is worthy of all of our worship, our love, our adoration. He's worthy of our sacrifice. Christ supreme is the theme means that Jesus is God's will for your life. Christ supreme means that Jesus is sufficient to quench that thirst that's in your soul, to meet that hunger that's in your soul. Jesus said, I'm the living water, I'm the breath of life. And if you come to me and you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. If you eat from me, you will never hunger again. I am the living water, I am the bread of life. And so that's what we mean when we say Christ is supreme. And so last couple of weeks, we've said Christ is supreme to sanctify you, that is to grow you more into the image and likeness of his son, Jesus. Last week we said Christ sanctifies us through a community of faith. And so we talked about what that community of faith looks like and, and how we live out being the church, being the body of Christ to one another. Here's what I want you to see this week and here in a couple of weeks when we get back to this is that Christ is supreme in a flourishing family. If you want a flourishing marriage, a flourishing family, then Christ must be supreme in your family. He must be of utmost importance. He must be given the place of first priority in your schedule, in your time, in your money, in your sacrifice, all these things. He must be supreme if you want a flourishing family, a flourishing Marriage, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The first part of this, if you want a flourishing family, you've got to have a flourishing marriage. And here's where you fill in the blank on our app and our message notes. All the verses and the points will be there. So today we're talking about having a flourishing marriage. And before we jump into that, let me just define what the Bible says marriage is. Jesus rose from the grave and proved that he was God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. So make no mistake, Jesus claimed to be God. Not a, not a moral teacher, not, not just another prophet in the line of many. Jesus claimed to be God, and then he proved it by rising from the grave. So everything that we get from Jesus is God's word. It's God speaking to us. Hebrews says he's the exact representation of the Father. And so everything that he says... Everything that he says is God's word. He, he is God and he proved it by rising from the grave. And in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus quotes from Genesis and he says this, that it is God who brings a man and a woman together. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and he will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So this is God's design for marriage. One man, one woman, one lifetime. One man, one woman, one lifetime. And what God has joined together, Jesus said, let man not separate. So, so We've got Genesis where God gives us the design for marriage. Now we have Jesus quoting from Genesis, from the Old Testament saying, this is God's word and I'm God in the flesh and I'm gonna prove it by rising from the grave. And he quotes from Genesis and he says, a man will leave his parents and he will be joined and united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So, so Jesus being God confirms and gives authority to God's design for marriage. And when you've got God's design, when you've got God's way of doing something, that would obviously be the correct way. What, what happens when you have any other way that man comes up with that disagrees with God's way, God's design? If God's design and God's way is correct and it is the right answer, what happens and what does it mean when you have any other way, any other plan for marriage that disagrees with the right way? You've got what? You've got the wrong way. The same thing is true in math. If one plus one equals two and two is the right answer, okay, now you could say all day long, well, well, I think it's three or I think it's, I think it's four. I think it's arrogant for you to say that the right answer is two. Listen, it doesn't matter. The answer, the right answer is two. 
It would be foolish to say, well, no, I think it's three or four, or I think it could be multiple different answers. It could be three, four, five, six. It could be whatever answer I, I come up with. Listen, you can come up with all the answers you want, but they are wrong answers because they disagree with the right answer. And the same thing is true with God's design. When we have God's design, when we have the right way of doing things, when we have God's way as the designer of doing things, and Jesus tells us that is God's way, that is the right way, when you come up with any other way that disagrees with God's right way, you've got a wrong way. We don't get to redefine what God has already defined in his word. You need to remember that when it comes to anything. You don't get to redefine what God has already defined very clearly in his word. We don't ever get to do that. That would be putting you in the place of God. That would be saying, I'm God and I know better than God who's already given me his way. No, we don't redefine what God has already defined. So you've got to decide who are you going to trust? Before we even get into what we're talking about, because what we're talking about today, I'm just gonna give you a heads up, it's pretty controversial especially in our society and our culture today. So you've got to decide, even before you come to, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust Jesus who rose from the grave and claimed to be God and proved it by rising from the grave? Or are you going to trust your opinion? Or are you going to trust the culture's opinion and what the world would tell us? Who are you going to trust? I don't know about you, but for me and for my house, we're gonna trust the word of the Lord. And I would invite you and I would challenge you to do the same, to trust the word of the Lord Jesus who died and rose again and proved that he's God and verified and confirmed this is God's way. To not trust God's way is idolatry. It's not a different way, it's you believing a lie and you engaging in idolatry. The devil's lie is always your way is better. The devil's lie is always, God's trying to withhold something from you. And so you need to come up with a different way in order to live the life that will make you happy and that will be pleasing to you. God's withholding something from you. You've got a better way. And so you should just follow your way and what makes you happy and just whatever you think. That, that's, that's right. That would be better than God's way. That's the devil's lie. But here's the truth. The truth is, is that God's way will always bring you ultimate joy and satisfaction and flourishing in this life. And God's way, listen to me, God's way of doing marriage, God's way of doing marriage will bring flourishing to your marriage. You can come up with a different way. It's just going to bring death and destruction. But God's way of doing marriage will bring flourishing and joy and satisfaction in your marriage. So I would invite you to do marriage God's way. Whether you're married today or single, I invite you to pursue God's way of doing marriage. And listen, if you're here today, you're single, you're, you're a kid, teenager, college student, whatever, you're single. And whether you wanna be married or not, here's, here's what I wanna challenge you with if you're single today. You're not, you're, in other words, you're not married. I would invite you, number one, to learn. Maybe you won't have to repeat some of the same mistakes that, that I have, that are my generation or the generations that have come before us. Maybe you won't repeat some of those same mistakes. So I invite you to learn and to lean in and engage as if you were married. Two, you might say, I'm single and I don't ever want to get married. <laughs> I don't ever want to deal with that. I don't ever want, that, that, that is absolutely fine. Then here, what we're about to talk about is the way that you can pray for the marriages in our church. Just like we are going to pray for your healthy and joyful pursuit in life as a single person or in marriage, we're gonna pray for you and we're going to preach the scripture to what's going on in your life. I would invite you to learn and to pray for us, for those of us who are married because you love and care for the body of Christ, for Christians in your church who are married. So. Let's turn to God's word. Uh, uh, Colossians chapter three, starting in verse 18. Starting in verse 18. We're gonna look at 18 and 19 today. And then we'll pick back up with Colossians here in a couple of weeks. Now, here's what you've gotta know before we even get to these verses. In Paul's day, this was very offensive to men. Women celebrated this. In our culture today, 
This is more offensive to women and to the culture. I don't think it should be. And we're going to talk about that as we really dive into what these verses are saying. But, but you got to know that in Paul's day, these were liberating to women and convicting or upsetting to men. T today, they're, they're a little bit reversed. But here's what I promise. We're going to be equal opportunity offenders today. And we're all going to walk away completely offended and convicted. All right, deal? Sound good? Okay, good. I'm glad we're on the same page. All right, Colossians chapter three, starting in verse 18, we're going to be looking at the flourishing family. And that starts here in Colossians chapter three with a gospel-centered wife a gospel-centered wife in the flourishing family. Look with me in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. So let's talk about this for a second. A gospel-centered wife submits to her husband as is fitting for those, watch this, who belong to the Lord. Now, Paul does not use the word obey here that he uses several verses later when we start talking about kids and parenting here in a couple of weeks. He doesn't use that word, it uses a different word. He uses the word submit, not obey, as was typical in Roman households. And so Paul appeals to wives, to Christian wives, to submit to their husbands because God has given them a leadership and accountability role in the family. Now, today, this word is not popular. I don't think any of us would disagree with that. I think all of us understand that this word and this concept is not popular. When I was doing college ministry about 15, 15 years ago or so, I was doing college ministry and uh, I was preaching on this and uh, we, we were discussing it in our, our small groups and I had a girl come up to me after one of the, the, the services and she said, I disagree with that. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, that verse right there, I don't like it, I disagree with this. <laughs> I said, uh, what, like, what do you mean? She said, I don't like that, I, I disagree with that. I said, what part? She said, all of it, I don't like that verse. I said, so you disagree with God? Well, no, no, but I disagree with that. Well, this is God's word. So if you disagree with this, you, you disagree with God's word and by doing so, you're actually saying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead, proved that he's God and gave his apostles authority to write the words of scripture. So by saying you disagree with God's word, you're, you're actually saying, I don't trust God, I don't believe God, and I don't believe even that Jesus rose from the grave because Jesus rose from the grave, proved that he's God and gave his apostles to write the words of scripture. So this is God's word. Well, that's not what I, I just don't, I just, I don't like that. And I said, okay, I get it. I get it. So let's talk about this for a second. This is what it's not saying. Here's what it's not saying. This is not generally true for men and women. This is talking about a marriage relationship between two Christian people. So it's not generally true for men and women. This is not true for single people. If you're single, this isn't saying that all women submit to men or as you are in a dating relationship or even engaged, that you are to submit to that person. That's not what this is talking about here. It's not for arenas outside the home. So this isn't true in politics or in the workplace. He is not using, again, the word obey. This is not talking about obedience. Paul uses obey later when he's talking about children, but he doesn't use that here when he's talking about a husband and wife relationship. This word and this concept does not mean that a woman or a wife in a marriage relationship is any less valuable or competent, and it doesn't mean they are inferior to their husbands. It doesn't mean that a wife won't have her own thoughts, feelings, and opinions. Now, just like anyone, we should always share our thoughts, feelings, and opinion in a helpful and respectful way, but it doesn't mean you won't have those and that you won't share them. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek to seek to influence your husband. You, you should. In fact, it was Darby's idea, I've told you this before, to start this church 
I was leading a college ministry called Raider Church. Mark and I and several of our other staff members were doing that. I was great doing that. And Darby told me one day in uh, our kitchen, I'll never forget it. She said, Clayton, your family, I'm glad you're doing Raider Church and you're having a good time doing that, but, but your family's struggling. We don't, we don't really have a place. And I think you need to pray about starting a church not only for us, but for people like us. And so the original idea for starting our church came from my wife. She was seeking to influence me. She heard from the Lord and she was sharing something with me that I had no desire to do at the time. I've told you this before and I I tell this, I talk about this in every membership lunch. I had no desire, but then the Lord kind of spoke through her to me. And over the next month, over the next six weeks, I began to pray and the Lord began to change my heart and put a new vision in my heart to start a church. But it all began because she sought to influence me and share what the Lord was telling her and share about what she thought the state of our family was. This is not about personality, whether you're an introvert or extrovert. This does not mean that your husband is the mediator or a mediator between you and God. That role is reserved for Jesus alone. Paul said there is one mediator between us and God, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. You have your own relationship with God. Your husband is not your mediator. This submission is never forced. It's always voluntary. It's never into sin. You obey God rather than man. And so you do not follow a husband's leadership into willing, disobedient sin And this concept is always exercised in the context of a loving, godly marriage. So here's what it is. That's what it's not. Here's what it is. Singular headship, plural leadership. Let me say that again. Singular headship, plural leadership. Let me explain it to you like this. We have a board of elders that leads our church and they do it together. We have myself, Brandon, uh, Mark Tatum, Barry Alvis, Kobe Colley. We're in the process right now of interviewing and walking through a process with another man that we are inviting to join our board of elders. We hope to announce that to you this summer and, and then weeks later, possibly pray over that person and install them as a new member of our board of elders. We have a board of elders that leads our church together So there's plural leadership there. I've talked about this before. I believe that's scriptural, that's biblical. You have a plurality of elders that lead your church, but then I lead that board. And so I lead the church together with that board of elders, but then I lead that board. They can hold me accountable and I do it with them, but if there's a problem in our church, who's accountable for that? Me, right? And, and the expectation is, is that the board would then hold me accountable for that or if go find someone else that's gonna do a better job or whatever the case might be. I lead the board, but we do that together. So, so there's a, a singular headship, but it's a plural leadership. We, we do it together. Any good leader knows they need to surround themselves with many other good leaders and hear from those people and invite them into the conversation so that they can lead effectively. And that's exactly what's going on here in a godly flourishing family. There's a singular headship, but a plural leadership. A husband and wife lead together, but the husband ultimately, you'll see here in just a second, is the one that's accountable and is the head of the family. We'll talk about that here in just a second. So that's what's going on here. This is more, this idea of submission is more about a spirit and attitude. It's about a condition of the heart. It's not about these, all these ins and outs and practical things of, well, it's in this situation, you do this. In this situation, no, it's about an attitude. It's about a spirit in your heart. And wives, Jesus is your example. Jesus is your example. Let, let, let me explain what I mean about, by that. Jesus was in authority and under authority at the exact same time. In authority and under authority. Jesus submitted to and obeyed his imperfect parents. And the scripture says he honored God in doing so. 
Jesus said, it's not my will, but it's yours, Father in heaven. Yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, your husband, here's where the illustration breaks down. Your husband is not God and does not have that kind of authority in your life. We're looking at the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus who would submit to and follow imperfect parents even when they didn't deserve it. That's the kind of spirit here. That's the kind of heart that's going on here. They may not deserve it, but I'm going to follow them and submit to them out of my honor and reverence for the Lord. Wives, ladies, because of the fall, I'm talking about in Genesis chapter three when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and I'm, it wasn't just Eve, we'll get to that here in just a second. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating from the tree, they, they weren't supposed to. In Genesis chapter three, because they sinned, because Adam and Eve sinned, there was a curse that was brought to them because of that sin. Their bodies were cursed, the ground was cursed, the earth, everything was cursed because of sin. And so God lays out some of these curses, some of these consequences for sin. And it says about the woman to Eve, God said, you will have this constant desire for your husband. And scholars have said, it means one of two things. I think it's both. That a woman will have a desire for a man and she will seek to find her ultimate identity and security in a man when instead she should be seeking to find it ultimately in God. So, so, so that's what scholars say. That, that's one meaning here. The other meaning is that because your desire will be for your husband, it, it's saying, some scholars will say, your desire will be to control your husband. And I think because of sin, because of the fall, it, it's both. It's not an either or, it's a both and. That women, and we know this to be true, women will seek to find identity and security in a man they will seek to find that from a man when they should be seeking to find it from the Lord. But then at the same time, in a marriage relationship, because of the fall and because of sin, a woman, the scripture says, will try to control her husband and rebel against that headship. Solomon in Proverbs, considered to be one of the wisest men to ever live, wrote about this kind of controlling spirit. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 13, he says this, a quarrelsome wife is as annoying as a constant dripping. So, Solomon is basically saying, it would be better to be waterboarded than to be in a marriage with a quarrelsome, controlling wife. Proverbs 21, verse nine, Solomon said this, better to live on a corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife, a controlling wife. Proverbs 21, verse 19, better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Solomon says it's better to die of thirst and to drown in the sand than to live in a house with a quarrelsome, nagging and controlling wife. Or Proverbs chapter five, verse 18 and 19, a little bit different picture. May your wife, may your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. It's kind of a different picture there, isn't it? It shows the power that a wife has in her home. The power of her gentle, caring, kind spirit and the way that it can kill and destroy or the way that it can be a fountain and the way that it can satisfy and the way that it can flourish her family. You see, because of God's design in men to lead and because of the fall, the curse for the man is that the ground and everything he does, it will be very difficult for him. It will be difficult to provide. And so because of these things, your husband needs a kind, gentle, encouraging spirit. Not a mom, not a nag, not someone who cuts or puts them down, but a kind, gentle, and encouraging spirit. I asked my wife Darby over the last couple of weeks as we discussed these verses just again and 
she began to tell me that really the, the root issue there in her heart, or she feels like in a wife's heart to not to submit or to rebel against this comes from fear. And as I continued to ask her questions, when it really came down to it, what she was saying was the fear in her heart comes from following and being led by someone who is imperfect and selfish. It's not as hard when you're talking about this perfect, loving God who never messes up. But when you're talking about someone like me, who's broken, who's messed up, the ultimate fear comes down into putting your life in the hands of someone who is selfish, who is broken, who is sinful, who doesn't really deserve it. But that's the gospel. You didn't deserve the love of God. That's the, that's the gospel message. These commands to a wife and to a husband, we'll get to the husband here in just a second, these commands are unconditional. In the Greek language, they're unconditional, which means this, they are not conditioned upon a performance. And that's tough. And that's where the fear comes in. Because these are commands to a husband and wife to submit to love in spite of performance. In the same way, the scripture says in Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were rebels. We hated him. We were his enemies. And he stepped towards us and took on flesh and died on the cross in spite of our performance. And so Paul says, for a Christian wife, for a Christian husband, we'll get to in just a second, you are to submit to your husband out of reverence for the Lord as it's fitting for those who belong to the Lord, who look to the gospel and see that God loved me and died for me and I didn't deserve it, but he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross for me, even though I didn't deserve it. I look to the Lord, I look to Jesus and because of the gospel and through the gospel, I do things God's way, even though he doesn't deserve it. And he never will. But as a worship to the Lord, and in light of the gospel, I submit to my husband. Secondly, a flourishing family has a gospel-centered husband. A gospel-centered husband. Husband, Look with me in verse 19. Paul writes this in Colossians chapter three. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Husbands, Peter, Peter would put it like this. If you treat your wife harshly, it's actually hindering your prayers to God. What, what a warning, right? That if you treat your wife harshly, it's actually hindering your prayers. Ephesians 5 says it like this. Love your wife like Christ loved the church and laid himself down for her. You see, because of the fall, men, husbands, we gravitate. This is the curse of sin in us. We gravitate towards passivity or aggression. Wives, you might say, I got a little bit of both. I got a passive aggressive, okay? So it's passivity or aggression. We, we either punt the marriage and the leadership of the family to our wives and we check out or we're overbearing and harsh and aggressive. Adam's sin, when you read the scripture, was actually the first sin. Before Eve ever took hold of that apple, before she ever took hold of that fruit, Adam was passive. He didn't step up. He didn't voice his concern. He didn't step in. He was passive. And when God comes into the garden to hold Adam and Eve accountable for their sin, who does he ask for? Does he ask for Eve? No. Does he say, Adam and Eve, where are you? No, when God comes into the garden to hold them accountable for their sin, they are no longer two, but one. 
God asks for Adam. Singular headship, plural leadership. God comes and holds Adam accountable for the sin in his family. You see, because of the curse of sin, men, husbands, we are tempted to punt the leadership of our family or to harshly abuse. So let's talk about these two things here for just a second. Number one, here's some ways that men can be harsh. We are controlling, we can be demanding, we can not involve our, our wife in decisions or the, 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 on the daily decisions and ongoing of, of, of the family. We can take more withdrawals than we make deposits into the marriage and into the family. We can be intimidating physically, verbally, by name calling, barking, raising the volume of our voice through public humiliation, making fun of our wives or telling joke about our wives, complimenting other women too much, especially physically, not confessing our own sin, being harsh with them about their mistakes, not sin, but mistakes. We can be too commanding like in a workplace, and maybe you've thought this before, I would never hire you, and if I did, then I would have to fire you. She's not your employee. She didn't work for you. Or maybe you're just not a very fun person to be around. That's being harsh. Now here's some ways men can be passive. We're not engaged relationally. We don't talk with our wife. We don't engage in conversation. Maybe we don't go home when we could go home. Been gone all day, go to work then go hang out at the bar with friends, whatever it might be. Maybe you don't go home when you could go home. And then when you do get home, you check out. Well, I'm, you know, I'm tired from work. I, I did this for years. I'm tired from work, get home, lay on the couch, watch TV, and just check out. Until the Lord convicted me of that. Another way could just be not showing up. Not showing up to family events, to kids' events, not being the spiritual leader of your family. And that could just be and look like right now, you're just not that excited to be here. And I get it, I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me right now. So you may not be that excited, but you're just overall, you're just not that excited to be here. You get drugged to church kind of like a child. How sad is that? That our wives, the moms are dragging our families to church. Or maybe you're just not standing up for your wife, standing up for your kids. Regardless, we tend to be harsh or passive because of the fall, because of the curse of sin. Husbands, what you've got to understand is before she's your wife, she is his daughter. And if you have a daughter, then you know what a responsibility that is. She didn't belong to you. She belongs to God. You are a steward of this relationship. And her following you assumes a generous, safe, life-giving environment. You see, your family, men, is like a garden. And the husband's the gardener. It's our job to make sure everyone in the family is growing and flourishing. The state of your family, whether it's flourishing or suffocating, is your responsibility. When God came in the cool of the day in that garden, he called out for Adam. And so it is a heavy burden and responsibility to bear, to be the gardener for your family and to know that the state of the garden, the state of the family, whether it's flourishing or suffocating and dying is your responsibility. You are the lead servant in your family. That's what it means to love your wife like Christ loved the church and to lay yourself down for her. Christ didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom for many. And that's what it means to be a husband and to be a dad is to give yourself up for your family, just like Christ gave himself up for his family. If you haven't met Amber Brown yet, she's our children's pastor and Amber is married to a man named Wade. Amber was in my youth ministry 20 years ago. 
So I've known her forever. I've known her since she was a, a, a little kid in the kids ministry at the church that I grew up in and ended up being a youth pastor at. And she was in my youth ministry. And, and so she, uh, she had been away. She went to Bible school and YWAM and all kinds of stuff. And, and she served at a friend of mine church in DC. And because of COVID, uh, they, they ended up moving back to, to, to Lubbock. And, and so then they started attending our church and knowing the background that she had in kids ministry and that we were gonna need a full-time kids pastor, I invited her, uh, we invited her to join our staff. And she's done a phenomenal job. But this past week, as we were discussing this message, as we do every week, later she told me in our staff prayer time, she voiced when we were talking about our spouses and just sharing encouraging things in our staff prayer time about her spouses. She said this about her husband, Wade. She said that she had such a strong personality and that she is such a strong leader and she is. She's a very strong leader. She's a very strong personality and we praise God for it. But she thought when she was single because of that, she thought she needed an even stronger leader or personality to lead her family that she might follow that person. She knew what a strong personality and what a strong leader she was. And so she thought she needed someone even stronger than her. But Wade had the heart of a servant. And she said his heart to serve behind the scenes softened her heart, lowered her guard, and gave her the desire to follow him. And when she talks about her husband, she glows. She smiles and she glows. Because her husband, Wade, lays himself down for her and for his family. He's the lead servant. You see, men, husbands, because of the design in women, the way God designed them to function, and because of the fall, your wife needs a gospel-centered, loving, selfless leadership. Ephesians 5 says that a gospel-centered husband who loves their wife like Christ loves the church will wash and cleanse them just like the word does in our lives that the husband can actually have that kind of presence in the family that washes and cleanses and provides life and flourishing for their family. This giving and practicing of the gospel, husbands, it's like a, a salve that prevents that hard heart, that prevents that hard critical spirit and can even heal it when it's already there. You see, this loving of your wife is unconditional. Just like the command to a wife to submit to her husband. Husbands, this command to love your wives is unconditional. In the Greek language, it's unconditional because it's a picture of God's unconditional love for you and I. That we did not deserve what Jesus did for us, yet he laid himself down for us in spite of our performance. He loved us and he died for us in spite of us. And so husbands, wives, we have a choice. We can trust and pursue God's way of doing marriage and it will lead to your ultimate joy and satisfaction and flourishing or you can do it your way. And it will bring nothing but hurt, pain and regret. Now here's what I want you to notice at this point in Colossians chapter three. Men, women, husbands, wives, parents. I just want you to notice the priorities here so far in Colossians chapter three that, that have brought us to this point. We, we've talked about the identity of Christ. We've talked about our identity in Christ. We've talked about how that Christ is supreme to sanctify us and to grow us, more us into the likeness of his son, that that happens in a community of faith. So I, I just want you to notice the way Paul has progressed here. He's talked about who Jesus is, who you are in Christ, how you grow in Christ, how you grow in Christ in a community. And now he gets to how the gospel works its way into a marriage and into parenting here in a couple of weeks and into the workplace. Do, do you see the priorities here? Do, do you see the, the flow and the progression here? What, what, I, what I hope it communicates to you is that the best way to love your spouse, men, to love your wives, men, is to love Jesus first. Wives, the best way to love your husband is to love Jesus first. The best way to love your kids is to love Jesus first. 
It's to have a priority on your spiritual life and on your community of faith. And as you do that, and as you seek first, in Jesus' words, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as you seek him first, everything else is added unto you as well. You will have a godly marriage and you will be godly parents. But if you wanna be a godly husband, if you wanna be a godly wife, if you wanna be godly great parents, then you must love Jesus first. And if you wanna be great godly parents, you've gotta have a great godly marriage first. And now I know some of you are here and you're like, man, I get it, but listen, the grass is just greener over there. I, I, I'm looking at my neighbor's grass, I'm looking at the coworker, I'm looking at whatever, and it just looks greener over there. The grass over here, it's tough, it's dying, it's dead. The grass is greener over there. When the grass is dying, do we blame the grass or do we blame ourselves? It's our fault. We don't blame the grass. It's always our fault when the grass is dying. You see, here's what you've got to understand and here's the big idea for today. The grass is greener where you water it. The grass is always greener where you water. If you think the grass is greener over there and you go over there, listen to me, you're gonna kill that grass. The answer isn't moving to the greener grass. The answer is watering the grass where you're at. The grass is greener where you water and you water the grass with the gospel, with the blood of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter three, Peter says it like this, that through your spirit and through your unconditional love and submission, you can win over a spouse without words. You could win over an unbelieving spouse without even speaking, just by your kindness, by your gentle, loving, selfless spirit. You could win over an unbelieving spouse. How much more possible than would it to be to win over a believing spouse as you unconditionally love that spouse or as you unconditionally respect and submit to that spouse? God's word, the promise here is that your spouse can be and will be won over through this sacrificial, unconditional, loving spirit. Sacrificial love begets sacrificial love. Service begets service. And the good news is that someone's already made the first move. And you're like, what are you talking about? He hadn't made any moves. She hadn't made any moves. No one's moving here. No, someone's already made the first move, it was Jesus. And that's what it means to be a gospel-centered husband or a gospel-centered wife. It's to recognize that Jesus has already made the first move. And so I look to him, I look to the gospel, to the power of the risen Jesus that now dwells inside of me. I look to him, I look to the gospel, to Jesus who's already made the first move and I look to him and now I move, you move. And you're like, him, her? Yeah, they need to look to Jesus and then make the first, no, 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 you. You look to Jesus. And because he's already made the first move, you've got to make your move. Someone's got to step up. When you're on the crazy cycle, there's a book called Love and Respect, it talks about this crazy cycle. When you get in this crazy cycle, someone's got to make the first move. Looking to Jesus, someone's got to make the first move and humble themselves, confess their sin, and unconditionally love and unconditionally follow and submit. So here's the challenges for you today as we close. Here's the challenge. First of all, a conversation. And I wanna challenge you to have this conversation, husbands and wives, this week. And here are the dynamics of this conversation. Number one, I want you to share one thing that your spouse does well and everything that we've talked about today. So here's, the, here's one thing you do well here. And then secondly, you're going to share the one thing that you don't do well. 
here. So there's encouragement here to your spouse and there's confession. In no way, shape or form are you saying, here are the ways that you don't do well here and here's what I do do. No, no, it's the opposite, okay? We're, we're, not, we're not leaving here with ammunition. The conversation is, here's the one thing you do well here, here's the one thing I don't do well here. So a conversation this week, that's the first challenge. Second challenge is this, I wanna challenge you to go on a date in the next month. Babysitter, restaurant, if you don't have the money, you let us know and the church will cover it. I wanna challenge you to go on a date. Childcare, restaurant, and if you don't have the money, the church will cover it. And the next month, go on a date. And then the third challenge is this. If you're like, we can't do any of that. <laughs> or even if you can, if you're having problems, then I wanna challenge you to go see a counselor. On our app right now, at the bottom of the menu, there's a button that says help. If you click help, there's several different options. You can submit a spiritual question. You can ask to meet with the pastor. And then there's another link that gives you a link to all of the counselors that our church has approved. They're, they're biblical Christian counselors. There's a lot of them. And if you select help, you can go on there and find a counselor. And one of the ones on that list is the one that my wife and, have seen, my wife and I have seen often. In fact, we, we saw her a couple of weeks ago because we had a parenting issue. I, I challenge you and invite you to see a biblical Christian counselor to help you navigate maybe some of the issues that you've got in your marriage. It will save you and it will bring ultimately, it will bring joy and it can bring satisfaction back in your marriage to have that third party help you navigate some of the issues that you've got in your marriage. So number one, a conversation. Number two, a date in the next month. And third challenge, go see a Christian counselor. Here's the challenge as we sing, as we worship, and as you leave here in just a little bit, here's the challenge. Don't pray, Lord, change him. And don't pray, Lord, change her. There's a place for that, but that's not the challenge today. The challenge here is, Lord, search me. Search me, test me, See if there's any offensive way in me. And if there is, then lead me in your everlasting way. Not my way, in your way. Lead me in your way. Would you pray with me? God, I pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we sing, as we worship, you would search our hearts. And if there's anything offensive in us, if we're not doing something according to your way, would you reveal it to us? And through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you help us to change it? God, would you help husbands and wives to look to Jesus who's already made the first move, who unconditionally loved us and laid himself down for us. And as we look to Jesus who said, Father, forgive them as he was being beaten and crucified through the power of the gospel. And as we look to the gospel, would you give us the power? to make that first step and to lay ourselves down. It's in your name we pray, amen.